Turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. We're going to pick it up where Pastor Matthew left it off in verse 18. We'll be in verse 19 of 1 John chapter 3. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to give you a question to ponder. John's going to flip the question on us in a little bit, but here's the question I want you to think about as we flip to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. The question is this. How do we know that God loves us? What I mean by that is what collection of data and facts have you put together to come to the conclusion that, in fact, God loves you? Here's a couple of facts that I came up with. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says in John 3.16, perhaps one of the most famous Bible verses in the world, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And there's one more famous John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, the first half there. Just right where your finger is on 1 John 3.19, if you look up a couple of verses, it says very clearly, it says, we know love by this, that Jesus laid his life down for us. So God makes it pretty clear. He's demonstrated it. He showed it in the person of Jesus Christ that he loves us. But what John's going to do now in 1 John 3.19 is flip the question. We know that God loves us. The Bible says, in fact, God loved us first. But the question is going to be this. How do we know that we love God? How do we know? We know, again, that God loves us first. But how do we know that we have returned that affection How do we know that we are, in fact, followers of Christ and truly abiding in him? And so John's going to answer that question tonight in 1 John 3, 19. And so if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. I always like to put it up there. So I'm going to have the Bible up on the board all night. We're going to be flipping to a lot of places, Old Testament, New Testament, but it'll always be up here. So you don't have to worry about flipping and trying to get there. I promise to put it up here for you, okay? Um, Reading out the New American Standard Bible, uh, there is one exception where I'm going to flip to another version just for a chapter, for a verse, excuse me, so you can see it, how it's written there. I think it makes it a little bit clearer. So the NASB, again, 1 John 3.19, it says this. We'll read through it, and then we'll take our time through it. It says, we will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps Jesus' commandments abides in Jesus and Jesus in him. We know this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. And if you're reading this in order, and you literally just picked up the Bible one day and you started in verse 19, it actually doesn't make sense because it starts off with that phrase, we will know by this that we're of the truth. And if you kept reading, there's actually nothing that you read in the next five verses in that chapter that says, what do we know by? That this right there, 
that big red circle, this, that this actually doesn't refer to anything that's after it. It refers to the verse that's just uh, before it. So it's verse 18. So I'm going to put that up here. Read that with me. It says, Dear children, let us not love with just words or just our tongue, but instead with actions and in truth. And then it says, we will know by this that we are of the truth. When you, in fact, are not just saying, oh, I love you, I love you, and then not showing it, but he says rather when you are up there and you are displaying that love, when like God did, when you're demonstrating that love, like Jesus did when he laid down his life, when you show your love in action and in truth, then you can know that you are of the truth. Does that make sense, live in truth? We're the living truth. Isn't that cool? But what does it look like to love in actions and in truth? And I'm going to have a lot of words on the screen in just a second. I'm going to go through this very quickly because I think Pastor Matthew did a wonderful job last week talking about loving in word and in truth. And so I'm going to flip through these, but we're going to look at what it looks like. How did Jesus love? I'm going to make five simple bullet points to look at the life of Jesus, what it looked like when he loved people, and then we'll compare that to what it is that we can look like when we love people. But very simply, Jesus served others. We know in the Bible he gave the beautiful example of washing disciples' feet. He, of course, gave his life on the cross. There's no greater act of service than that. We know that he helped the sick and the poor. He made the blind to see and the lame to walk, and he healed countless people. Jesus included the outcasts, the outcasts like the tax collectors and the sinners and the lepers and the Samaritans. We know that Jesus made it a point to reach out to those that no one else really wanted to reach out to. Jesus went about telling people all the time about God's love. In fact, he literally walked around town all day telling everybody about just how much the Father loved them. And so now we take the example of Jesus, and we look at it, and we say, oh, and Jesus prayed for people. Oh, gosh, how could I forget that? John 17 is a whole chapter of Jesus praying for us. And the Bible says that Jesus, in fact, still intercedes praying for us to the Father. And now we can look, okay, so how are we to love then? What does it look like for us to love in action and truth? Well, we can serve others. We can serve as the opportunity arises. And there are always opportunities at church to serve. But you know what that looks like? There are people out there who just sometimes need a helping hand. And we can be the hands and feet of Christ to come alongside and serve. We can help the sick and the poor. We can reach out to the homeless and the hungry. We can serve whenever disaster strikes. I remember just reading about, I think it was the Franklin Graham, uh, the, the trucks, the semi-trucks that are headed right now to uh, the East Coast for, Florida, for, for Hurricane Ida. Um, it's just amazing to me to see the body of Christ mobilize whenever a, a need comes to reach out to those who are just poor and in need. We, as a body, church body, can include the outcasts. Do we look at the church as a hospital for the spiritually sick, or do we look to exclude those that don't look like us? I pray we'd have the heart of Jesus and reach out to those that are the outcasts. We can tell people about God's love. We can share the gospel with others. We can invite people to church. And certainly we can pray for people. We can pray for those in need. We can pray and intercede for those who in fact are lost. And so that this there, we will know by this that we're the truth. Again, we're looking to do our love in actions and in truth. And the Bible goes on to say, and we will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And this is that verse. I 
read that, I've, I read it no less than 100 times, to assure our hearts before him and whatever our heart condemns us. I don't know if it's the commas or the semicolons or things that just don't click in my brain, but I had to go to another version, and so I, I brought it up, and the, the NIV um, seemed to just break it down into terms that made sense to me. And so I'll read it to you. It says, again, this is starting in verse 19 from the beginning. It says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And so this section here is really talking a little bit about what it is that we feel. We talk about what we know in the very beginning. We're going to know that we're of the truth. But here it's talking about our heart, that epicenter for all of our emotions and our feelings. And God here is wanting to focus on really one specific emotion. It's a pretty negative emotion. It's one of the most negative emotions. It's that, that emotion of condemnation. And the Bible is actually going to split pretty much humankind into one of two camps. There are those who struggle with condemnation. And there are those who don't. And for those who know what it is, uh, I'm preaching to the choir. For those of you who don't, and there may be a few blessed of you who don't deal with condemnation, but here's what condemnation really is. It's that overwhelming sense of just utter failure. That overwhelming sense that you just don't measure up. That you and the things that you've done in your life are so bad and so unforgivable, and there's no hope. That's what condemnation is. That's the hurt that condemnation can have. And so I wanted to put a slide up there that talked about how our heart condemns, but God is greater. And then I, I did a lot of researching just on condemnation, specifically God's reaction to condemnation. And it was very interesting to me because condemnation is like one of those deep, heavy things that I have a lot of friends and myself deal with. And it's one of those things that I often treat with kid gloves. That is, I'm very delicate, very sensitive. I don't come with a loud, expressive voice. I often tame it down. I'm a, more of a listener and a there, there kind of a guy. And as I researched what God's reaction is towards condemnation, I was actually quite shocked. And there's a famous story. I'm sure you know it. There was a woman who was caught in adultery. They pulled the woman out from the house where she was committing the act, and they brought her into the town square, and she stood there, and all the men picked up a stone about ready just to stone her when Jesus intervened. He stooped down. We don't know what he wrote, but he's writing on the sand there. And he got up and he said, hey, yeah, let, let you who have not sinned, you go ahead and cast the first stone at her. And she is there just weeping. She's a mess. She's no doubt taking the fetal position. Somebody's going to take a rock at you. You don't just like, you know, chin up it, right? She's down there just weeping, crying, afraid that that first rock's just going to hit her somewhere. It's going to really hurt. And it says one by one from oldest to youngest, they just dropped their rocks and they just went away. And Jesus turns to the woman and he says, woman. Where are those who condemn you? Wipes the tears and looks up for a second and she says, they're nowhere, Lord. Jesus is short and sweet and he says, yeah, neither do I condemn you. Get up, sin no more. And he leaves. And you think of a woman there who's terrified, caught in the act, weeping, crying, fearful for life, shaking, clothes tattered, if, if wearing anything, and she's just there and just, and the Lord's like, hey, yeah, I don't condemn you. Now get up and go. 
And he just walks away. And so the title that I gave this isn't one of like, oh, our heart condemns and God is greater. It was more like this. No, when it comes to condemnation, facts don't care about your feelings. When it comes to condemnation, you have to understand that there are some simple, cold, hard facts that are greater than your feelings. What are those facts? The facts are this, that there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to know for truth that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. You've got to know as 1 John, the beginning of this book says, it says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you don't get to mope there and wallow in condemnation, he says. He says, my, the Lord says, my son paid the price. His blood, the precious blood of Jesus, has washed you, your sins away. And now in 1 Peter 1, 18, it says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So when it comes to condemnation, you don't get to sit there thinking you're a failure. You don't get to sit there with the overwhelming heaviness on your chest, just beaten down on you, making everything in your life sucky. God says, I don't condemn you. Get up and go. Sin no more. Here's a picture up here. If I put that picture up, if you're a Sunday morning regular, what does that picture remind you of? One person louder. The Passover. It is the Passover. I struggle with condemnation. I struggle with the overwhelming just feeling that I have done something that is unforgivable, that is just, oh, the Lord, how could he ever... Who am I? I'm not worthy. And I wanted to just share this with you because it's this illustration. It's this simple picture to me that just makes everything for me go away. Because words are one thing, but illustrations just kind of do it for me. And so if you don't know this story, it's in Exodus chapter 12. It's the story of the 10th plague of Egypt. It's a story that God had sent nine plagues to try to convince Pharaoh to finally let his people go. And for nine plagues, Pharaoh had hardened his heart and said, no, they're staying put. So God had said, okay, there's a 10th and final plague coming. And it was the plague where the firstborn of all the land in Egypt was going to die. But God had told Moses, hey, Moses, I want to tell you what you're going to do to save my people. You're going to slaughter the Passover lamb. You're going to take this branch of hyssop, and you're going to just mark it on the doorposts of the house, on the lentil of the house. And the Lord said, when I pass through, I'm going to see the blood on the door, and the destroyer is not going to go in. We're just going to pass it over. But to all the houses who don't have the blood of the lamb, they're going to be part of that plague. And so Moses did as he was instructed. Moses got all the people together. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. They sprinkled the blood. And at midnight... Right at the stroke of midnight, the Lord went through and the destroyer came up to the house of all the Israelites and looked and he saw the blood 
And to me, it's as amazing what he did do as what he didn't do. I love the fact that he passes over. It's beautiful. But you know what he didn't do? And this is the illustration that gets my condemnation set free from me. What he didn't do is the Lord didn't decide to just go and peek in the window of every single house and look at the hearts of the people and wonder, hmm, are they worthy to be saved? And you know how the story ends. You know these people are not good people. You know they're wicked people. You know, in fact, that after God does, in fact, set them free, after he parts the Red Sea and he drowns the enemies and he promises them entrance into a land flowing with milk and honey, these people complain, they backstab, they whine, they wish they could go back, they make golden calves. The the heart of these people we know as seen after God has done beautiful miracles for them, we know that even beforehand, these people must have had wicked hearts. They must have been envious and jealous and spiteful and hateful towards all the Egyptians. And... The Lord didn't care one bit. The verse in John says, God knows everything, and he knows. He knew who was in the house. He didn't care because he loved them. All that he needed to know was that the blood of the lamb was covering them. As a believer in Christ, I just take such great confidence in that, that the Lord's not looking to see me because he knows He knows what's in there. He knows who I am. And yes, I'm a new creation in Christ, but I still sin every day. But God looks at me. He doesn't see the failures. He sees just the blood covering me. And I just thank him for that so much. And so if you're dealing with condemnation, may God bless you. May he deliver you from that. May he set you free from that. It's not his plan or his will or his purpose for your life to even for a moment stay in that pit of condemnation. But man, there is another category. There are that other people that do not feel condemned. There are those people, it says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And I I had this illustration in my head, a picture of of sometimes when I'm in that, that, that condemnation a little bit, and I think about what it might be. There's that song that says, I can only imagine, right, what it's like when I get to heaven. And I, I, often, I often think about that. I often think about, hey, it's rapture or rupture. I'm going to be there one day. Lord, make it soon. But I often think, like, when I get there, when I'm feeling condemned, it's, almost, it's one of those things where, boom, whatever happens to me happens to me, and I'm in heaven, and I'm looking around, and I can see the streets of gold, and I can see just everything's beautiful, it's perfect, and there's the Lord. And I, I kind of take a moment, and I, like, in the right place? Like, is this, is this for me? And I often project that sick condemnation that's in me onto my, what heaven would be like. Of course it won't be like that, but that's just me in the flesh thinking about it. But these people that have no condemnation, when they picture what it's like to get to heaven, they're like, yep, I'm here. Hey, hey, this is the place. I knew it all along. God's grace covered me. I've been redeemed. I'm, I, this is for me. I knew it all along. And they're going to get to heaven. They picture it's just going to be like a great party. And they walk in like they're the life of the party. And they're like, yeah, I never had one doubt about it. I knew what God did for me. He died on the cross for my sins. Let's go. And they just show up. And I'm like, oh, man, that must be nice. That must be really nice to have your daydreams thinking like that. But it says they're the kind that are going to have confidence before God when they ask for things. They're the kind of people that are going to come right up to the throne of grace and just say, Lord, hey, how you doing? It's me. I'm your child. You're my dad. I need something. Can we talk? And so God is there to tell us in these two verses, hey, if you're in that pile where you're feeling condemned, God's greater. It's been done on the cross. You're set free. But if you're also that kind that, hey, I don't deal with condemnation. I just, uh, the Lord, I am my beloved and he is mine. Let's do this thing. Then great, he says, you can have a confidence. And a confidence that says, in whatever we ask, 
that we'll receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this verse, this verse brings a lot of Christians to uh, sometimes some contention that whatever we ask, we receive from him. We're going to qualify that tonight. We're going to look at that a little bit deeper, this idea of whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because it says whatever we ask, but I'm going to open up with this question. Is there ever a time, the scripture says, that we ask and God won't respond? Or we ask and we do, in fact, not receive? Is there ever a time? It says whatever we ask, we receive. But is there a time when if we ask, we won't receive? The answer is yes, absolutely. It's a couple of verses. James chapter 4, verse 3 says this. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives or you ask amiss so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, we're not looking to ask God for a Ferrari because God knows that I have no intention of driving the speed limit with that Ferrari. I ask with the wrong motives. I ask so I could spend it on my pleasures. Psalm 66, 18 says this, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God actually further qualifies our asking just in a couple chapters later in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he says this, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything, anything, according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so, yes, the Bible's verse says there that we can ask anything, but in the same chapter, by the, in the same book, rather, by the same author, he goes on to clarify it's just not just anything. It's anything according to his will. So I often think about this. Well, I want to ask God, because the Bible says in multiple places that we should ask and receive. If we ask for a fish, is God going to give us a stone? Is, if, if it, the Bible says ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. God's all about, in multiple times in the Bible, asking and receiving. And so the Bible says we're, we're to ask. But I ask myself this question. What are we to ask for? What does that look like? And so I'm going to give you three simple points. The idea just to kind of put them in three different categories. Exhaustive list, no, not covering every single circumstance, but it'll cover most things. I suggest we stick to these three biblical principles when it comes to asking things of the Lord. Number one, ask for things that you know are 100% in line with God's will as expressed through his word. Ask for things that you know are 100% in line with the will of God as he's expressed through his word. What does that look like? It's when I say, Lord, could you please help me forgive them for what they did to me? Are you 100% in line with God's will when asking for help to forgive? Absolutely. Jesus, should we forgive this guy seven times? No, seven times 70. God said, if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. God places a lot of emphasis on making sure that we forgive people. Lord, could you please give me the patience to deal with my child or with my spouse or my coworker? Is it 100% in line with God's will that you would walk in patience? Yeah. So can we ask for patience all the time? Absolutely. Lord, would you give me the opportunity and the boldness to share the gospel with my coworker today or with my family member or with a stranger today? 
Are you 100% in line with God's will when you ask for boldness and opportunity to share the love of Jesus? Absolutely. Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. God says that he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. Absolutely, when you pray and you ask God for boldness in sharing the gospel, does he want to give it to you? Category number two, simply ask for God's will. So the first category is when we know for certain it's 100% God's will for us, that we can ask for it. When you don't know that, you simply ask for God's will. What does, that, what does that look like? Simply ask for God's will. Lord, what's your will in regards to maybe which college I should go to or what job I should have? What's your will? Lord, what do you want from me? Hey, Lord, I've got these two different options. What's your will for this? What do you, Lord, want from me to do? The Bible says if you lack wisdom, you can ask, and it will be given to you. It's a promise from God. And so when you ask, ask for the wisdom on which route to go. God promises he'll give it to you. This third one, I thank my wife so much for giving me the words to explain it this way. So there is a time when we can ask for whatever we want. Ask for whatever you want, the Bible says. Whatever you ask, it says. But whenever you ask, comma, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What does that look like? Well, Jesus gave us the example. Matthew 26, 39 says, and Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It may sound for us like this. It may sound, Lord, I'm sick. Could you please heal me? Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. I'm going to pull up a picture here. Some of you might know what that is. Some of you might not. It's a kidney dialysis center. I'm going to tell you of a story of a man who is very dear to my heart. His name was Jim Hundermark. Jim sat. I always picture Jim sitting in that middle chair. He sat in that chair for years and years and years. He at one point was down one kidney, and then at one point he had both kidneys removed, and it was not just virtually every day when for hours a day he was hooked up to these machines. We were in a Bible study, a small group together for years. We, his family had, had prayed over him and asked the Lord to heal and asked for a miracle. We had laid hands and prayed over him and asked multiple times, Lord, just please, Lord, just heal, heal. We know you can do it, Lord. We know that if, it's, if you want to, we know the power is in you to do it. Obviously, you can do it, Lord. And we prayed and he prayed. And Jim pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, I don't know that it's God's will to heal me. And I tried to cheer him up a little bit. I thought maybe he was being a little depressed. And I said, oh, don't talk like that, Jim. Stay optimistic. Stay positive. You know, the Lord can do it. And he's like, no, no, no. I have no doubt in that. I just don't think that he's going to. I don't think that he wants to. And I said, why, Jim? He said, you have no idea how awesome it is. I said, awesome it is? What are you talking about? He says, I sit right there in that middle chair, and you know who's next to me? A guy that's dying right next to me. And on the other side of me is a gal that's dying, he said. And they're stuck sitting next to me. They're a captive audience for a couple of hours. And I tell them about Jesus, he said. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, and the nurses will come in, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. He's like, I have a captive audience every single day to tell people about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Jim, I think maybe 
God's will may in fact be for you to be there for such a time as this. Maybe. And so we pray for those things, the anythings, the healings, the cars, the whatever it may be. Lord, may I have it, but not my will, Lord. Your will be done. Surrendering things that we ask for ultimately to the will of the Lord. And so again, it's that ask for what you want, comma, nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. So if the Lord did. We bring it home now in verse 23. It says this, it says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And there's a whole pronoun thing that gets really difficult if you read this. So I'm going to insert the Jesuses when they're the Jesuses and the capital H's. I'm going to read that 24 again. It says, the one who keeps Jesus's commandments abides in Jesus and Jesus will abide in him. We know by this that Jesus abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so we're going to break that down just a little bit. It says, this is his commandment that we believe. It's the first part of the commandment, that we simply believe. Believe? What are we going to believe in? There's a lot of things to believe in. I think Jesus clarified it pretty simply in John 14, 6, when he said, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what you got to believe in. You have to believe that the only way to get to heaven is by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, you're not getting there because you're a good person. And you're not getting there because you come from a Christian family. You're not getting there because you go to church. And I wrote those out because sometimes we just need to see it, read it, take it in for a second. And in fact, if you just use our modern expression for the word believe, you're, it's not even good enough because the Bible says even the demons believe and they tremble. And we know the demons aren't going to heaven. So what is it then we're believing in? This belief here is not just to mentally take it in and know, and yes, there's a historical Jesus. Yes, I, he in fact died, and yes, he rose again. And no, no, no. The Bible says you've got to be believing to the point where you put your entire trust in that thing. The Bible says you have to just put everything that you are into what he did for you. You've got to stand there in absolute conviction by the Holy Spirit and say, I am a sinner. You've got to stand there and say simply, oh, Lord, I'm a sinner. Your word says that there's a penalty for my sin. The wages of sin is death. Your word goes on to say, Lord, that the, God, you demonstrate your love for me that while I'm in that sinful condition, while I'm, a, while I'm a sinner, that Christ, in fact, died for me. And the Bible goes on to say that if you then confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what are you believing in? Yeah, you're believing in a Jesus that lived a perfect life, that died on the cross for your sins, that was buried in the tomb and on the third day rose again and conquered death to give you life. That's what you're putting your trust in. That's what you're believing in. And when the Bible talks about believing right here, this is a command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he means. He goes on to talk about then the love. You believe, that belief has got to transform you. That belief in what Jesus has done for you and making you now a new creation, you got to go and love one another, just as he commanded us. And I remember just 
So there's a command. Is there a time in the scripture in which Jesus himself literally gave a commandment for us to believe and to love? Of course there is. The answer is absolutely yes. It comes in John chapter 15. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and I'll skip then to verses 12 and 17, just to encapsulate the whole thing. I think we're going to read enough that you'll get it. John 15 verse 1 says, red letters, Jesus speaking here. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you are abiding in me. You see, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. This, he says, is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This, I command you, that you love one another. I could have just read 12 and 17 and say, hey, they're the commands, pretty simple. You gotta love. I read verses one through five of the same chapter so you'd understand the context of abiding in Christ, bearing fruit, because it's gonna shine some light as we read that verse 24, because it says, the one who keeps his commandments and abides in him and he in him, we know by this that he abides in us. Okay, how do we know that he abides in us? That, that we are in fact in Christ and he's in us? How do we know? By the spirit whom he has given us. By the spirit he's given us. So the proof that I'm in Christ and that Christ is in me is the spirit. Okay, now there are not a lot of times in the Old Testament that I read about stuff and I get envious. There are not a lot of living conditions in the Old Testament and the way that they do things. Uh, forget the fact that you couldn't eat bacon. There's not a lot of things about the Old Testament that I'm like a really big fan on, right? But there's one. There's one thing that I was like, wow, that would make it so much easier. In the Old Testament, there's a great story. You know this. Saul is the first king over the land of Israel, over the nation of Israel, really. And Saul had been disqualified as king. And God had said to the prophet Samuel, I would like for you, please, to go out and find the second king. And in fact, I'm going to tell you who it is. You just got to go there and anoint him. And so Samuel says, okay, Lord, where would you like me to go? And he says, go to the house of Jesse and line up his sons. It's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel goes on a journey, and he finds Jesse. And he says, hey, Jesse, how you doing? Hey, Samuel, I'm good. How you doing? Hey, can you get your sons lined up real fast? Uh, God says he's got something planned for one of them. And she's like, all right. And so Jesse there, he, he lines up his sons. He starts with the tallest handsomest, oldest, best-looking dude, the big yoke guy. He lines them up, and then it kind of just goes down to, like, just the middle children, right? And it goes down and down and down, and, and you know, Jesse, proud papa moment. <laughs> My boys, which one, Samuel? And Samuel looks at him, and God says, yeah, I, I'm not looking, looking on the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart, and these guys aren't it. Jesse's a little puzzled, and Samuel says, well, the Lord said it was going to be one of your sons, and it's not these guys. And so he says, Jesse, do you, by chance, have, like, another son who's not here? Jesse thinks for a second, yeah, I, got, I do actually have one more son. Yeah, but he's kind of a punk, and he's sort of, like, uh, a hothead at times, and he, and he thinks he's all that. But, um, yeah, I got another son. 
no way that kid, he's thinking. And Samuel says, hey, would you mind just calling him and bringing him? Where, where's he at? He's, he's like, oh, he's in the field as a shepherd. He's like, hey, David, David, hey, come here. All right. David comes marching. Hey, Pop, what's up? Hey, there's a guy who wants to talk to you about something. You know, Jesse's thinking, well, it must be a mistake. Something's going wrong. And Samuel, I love this because 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed it. And that is, he just took this huge thing of oil and just poured it on his head and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel's like, all right, I did it. And how cool I thought in the Old Testament to look back on the day that you knew for certain that the Spirit of God came upon you as that day when you got dunked in olive oil. Like, how great. You just have that, you know, I have a couple of days. I know the day I got saved. I know the day I got baptized. And like the day just, like, man, that day then the Spirit came upon you. This guy came with a jug of oil and dumped it on me. Boom, and then boom, oh, there it is. Spirit filled. Like, how cool. Like, you could just mark that day. That'd be so cool. Different times, different ways. The Bible says this when it comes to how do we know, in fact, that we're spirit-filled. It says, you'll know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 17 says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. And we know this connects beautifully, wonderfully, perfectly when you link this with Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 23, when he starts off by listing the, the, the fruits, if you will, the deeds of the flesh versus the fruits of the spirit. He goes on to say, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. These things are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and a lot of things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And so when you go back and you think about this, the idea that, hey, I look at verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think about that when I put it all together. I look at that, verse 24, and it says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And Jesus will abide in us. And we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. We know the spirit's in us by the fruit. And so I ask you to just take a moment, spirit-led in your own life, in your own heart, in your own conscience right now, to just take a second to examine and just say, man, do I see evidence of the fruit of the spirit in my life? Do I have a joy? Do I have peace? Do I have kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Above all, do I have love? Do I love in actions and in truth, in deed, the things that I do, the things that I say? Am I loving? And that's your litmus test. That's what God wants to just have us take a moment to heart check tonight to say, man, 
And if not, then the question becomes, because the Bible gives that beautiful uh, vineyard illustration that Jesus is the, is the vine and we are the branch. And if you are abiding, just the simple biblical truth, if the branch abides in the vine, that it will bear fruit. It doesn't have to do anything else, just abide. You just gotta be attached to it to bear fruit. The fruit will just be produced naturally. Good tree produces good fruit. And if you just have to wonder, if you say, man, I don't, I don't really know that I'm walking in love. I don't know that I'm, I have a peace and I'm really not very kind and rarely gentle. Jesus is just saying, are you abiding in me? Or are you a branch that's just kind of pulling itself away, not sucking all the nutrients from the vine, not abiding with Jesus through his word, not fellowshipping with other believers, not spending time in prayer, not just talking to God, but asking him to speak and you listening. Are you abiding in that relationship with the Lord? And if you are, God is here to tell us tonight that the fruit, the spirit is the natural byproduct. It just happens. It will be that way, he says. And so I recap very simply by saying this. By this we know. This is what God wants us to know. We know that God loves us because he showed us in the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to forgive us our sins. We know that we love God in return because we follow his command to love others, not just by saying we love people, but actually in our actions. We know God is greater than our feelings of condemnation and looks at us through the blood of Jesus. We know that we can ask of God and receive from him when we ask according to his will. We know we need to believe in Jesus, put our trust in him alone to be saved, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's no way to get to the Father except through him, and then to walk in love for others just as he commanded us. And we know by the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives that we are, in fact, abiding in Christ and that Jesus abides in us. So by this we know Again, take that moment today, tonight. Come forth after this next song to pray with those who are up here. If you need prayer, just to check your heart and just say, man, do we really know these things? If you're falling short in area, any area, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for the encouragement in your word. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, you'd have us just to get up and sin no more, move forward. And so we take this step tonight moving forward in full confidence that things we ask according to your will we receive. And so I ask that you just continue to bless us, that you'd continue to pour out upon us, that you would draw us nearer to you Help us to make time in our lives for you. Help us to make time to be in your word, to be with your people. Help us, Lord, to be a branch that just always desires to abide in you and take every moment of joy and satisfaction as you abide in us. And help us to bear much fruit that this world might see our fruit, might want to taste and see that you are good. So that's our prayer tonight, Lord. We just give you the rest of this night. 
We give you again our affection, our praise, our devotion now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father.